So uh, hello everyone and welcome to the first and what I hope will be a series of interviews with all sorts of folks across the tabletop industry. I'm Ian McAllister, head honcho of the Giant Brain, and I'll be your interviewer tonight. Uh, tonight my guest is a UK tabletop industry legend. He's worked at Games Workshop, Mantic Games, and he now runs his own company with his partner Sophie, and the company is called Needy Cat Games. He's the designer behind the revival of Warhammer Quest and Adeptus Titanicus at Games Workshop, the phenomenally successful Hellboy board game from Mantic Games, and Devil May Cry from Steamforge Games. I'm delighted to welcome James Hewitt to Giant Brain Headquarters. Oh, lovely to be back. Indeed, you've been on before as well, I know. I have. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be a, a fun new experience. Indeed, well, we've got a new stage built, you know, the sort of non-Euclidean nature of the giant brain HQ means that uh, we can have vast areas inside small areas. So, you know. I, I didn't want to mention a... it, but my eyes have turned black with madness. Yeah, I mean, that happens. That's just, you yeah. know, you, you oh, did I'll sign the waiver on the way in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, thank you so much for having me here. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to this. No, thanks for coming along. Thanks for volunteering for the first of these, what we'll hope will be a series of these kind of interviews and recording sessions. So, uh, what's it like working for one of the biggest game companies in the world? And by that, I unfortunately mean Games Workshop and not Needy Cat Games. I, I was going to say, you know, we're, I mean, you know, we are a, a colossus of the industry, uh, both of us. But uh, no, I think Needy Cat is not quite to that level yet. Um, yeah, no, working for, for Games Workshop is an absolute experience. Uh, it's one of the few places, I think, in the industry where you can go along and do a full-time job you know get paid um yeah. you know a, a, a nice hourly wage um get sick pay holidays holidays all that kind of thing uh, work in an office environment nine to five and be designing games it's just it's not a common thing you don't see that very often and uh so it is it is quite unlike uh any other job I've had because also, I mean, the, the thing is that the flip side of that is that it has quite a lot of corporate culture, you know, uh, compared to uh, the rest of the industry, which most of which feels still quite small and cozy in a lot of places. Uh, you very much feel like a cog in a machine. And um, I learned a heck of a lot while I was there, uh, but I was always aware that uh, I was there to do the job that I was there to do. Uh, I wasn't there to. Um, you know be too creative or innovative it was like do, do the job get get paid uh and you know repeat and that was it and you know i, I was there for four years i think three four years and um yeah the, it was such a massive massive learning experience i there's something to be said for working alongside some people that have been doing this professionally for you know two three decades um yeah sure it's it's there's nothing quite like it and I, I certainly wouldn't be where i am today without the experience i learned from that i mean you're obviously given some fairly big franchises i mean warhammer quest is like is <laughs> i mean it, it it looms large in my own personal board game history yeah so is, is it is that a frightening proposition when someone just dumps by the way can you please remake warhammer quest on your lap Oh, absolutely. I mean, that particular one. So that was Warhammer Quest Silver Tower was the project. Although, interestingly, it wasn't Warhammer Quest initially. It was just uh, the Silver Tower. And okay. Yeah, and I think there was some kind of uncertainty over whether they had they, they still had the legal right 
to make a Warhammer Quest board game because there had been um, the Warhammer Quest adventure card game by Fantasy Flight. Yeah. Um, written by Adam Brady Sadler, who I'm now working with on Myth and Goal, which is a different game we're doing. Um, but yes, yeah, so there was that. There was also there were the app games of Warhammer Quest. And so I think there was kind of an uncertainty as to whether they had the license to, to still do it, you know, big business and IPs being what they are. Um, but e- even then, it was a bunch of heroes going into um, a, a dungeon. It's a Warhammer game. It was going to be Warhammer Quest, even if it didn't have the name on the box people were going to stack it up against it and i mean warhammer quest was one of my key formative experiences hero quest was the game that got me into all of this in the first place when i was a kid and so warhammer yeah, quest felt like the, yeah i think if you're of a certain generation hero quest or space quest are <laughs> the things that got you in um and then warhammer quest kind of felt like the the next upon in, in my teenage years that came out and that was the thing that really showed me i mean I, i'd not played Dungeons and Dragons or any of that. I'd not come in through any of the role-playing things. So that was my idea of a dungeon crawling game. Uh, and so, yeah, then being given like the reins of this revival and being told, right, you need to go and make this um, was quite something, uh, especially because the miniatures had clearly been sculpted with like a, a sly wink to Warhammer Quest. There were lots of little references, you know, the fact that you had the uh the what the grot scuttlings i believe or the half giant spider half goblin that's kind of a mishmash of two of the popular enemies in warhammer quest you had the um the various characters kind of had a few uh analogs in the original game and then so then the the whole thing for me became all about how many references to the original game can i cram in and, <laughs> you know we, we got a fair few i went through the whole uh the old uh random events chart from Warhammer Quest and try to add as many of those things in, but give them all a healthy twist to make them feel unique. Um, but weirdly, it's a thing that I've kind of got more accustomed to since then. I mean, that doing that job led to me getting the job in the specialist games department, working on Titanicus, Necromunda. Um, being like, I suppose, custodian of Blood Bowl is the best way I can put it, because <laughs> Blood Bowl didn't need any rewriting. It was It was... You know, it, it was a complete game, basically. Uh, so I just kind of added a few mistakes into it for for good measure. But um, I've kind of been working on re implementations of game ideas for, uh, you know, well, for most of that time there. And then even now, and we get to work on a lot of IPs, like you said, Devil May Cry, Hellboy, things where we're taking a well-beloved thing and adapting it. So I think I've, I've kind of, I wouldn't say I've got used to the idea of it now, but it's certainly... Um, I feel like I'm gradually becoming less terrified of ruining <laughs> people's ideas of what a game should be. So, so when you worked on, so when you worked on Devil May Cry, and that was Steamforge Games, was that yes. as Needy Cat Games? You were sort of brought on as con- consultancy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, oh, right, so, okay. um, so everything that we've done as uh, well since we started Needy Cat has been uh, as Needy Cat Games. The only exception is. Uh, Blitz Bowl, which I did for Games Workshop after I left. Oh. And that was, that was okay. it was still Needy Cat, but we're not credited or anything. It's just, you know, uh, there's no credit because it's Games Workshop. And it's very much, uh, there's a Games Workshop game. But um, yeah, that was the only time that we haven't done something as Needy Cat. Um, you know, Devil May Cry, uh, Hellboy, Legal Infamy, about half a dozen other games that I can't talk about. All of them are, are the Needy Cat projects. We kind of we're in a weird. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. Games you can't talk about. 
Games we can't talk about. Wink, wink, wink. Uh, can say nothing about them at all. Ask me again in approximately six to twelve months, and I'll tell you some things. Sure, we'll have you back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, yes. Yeah, so basically, we um, we're we're in quite a weird position in that in that we there aren't many people in the industry doing this, but companies come to us and say we have an IP or a range of miniatures or an idea for a game, and then we help them make that, which. Is quite unusual because a lot of designers will work uh, on a game themselves, then pitch it to a publisher. Whereas we kind of work with the publisher from, publisher from the start. Um, cool. So it's yeah, it's it's an interesting, different way of doing things. Yeah, that that's that sounds fascinating. You mentioned sort of Myth and Goal, which is a sort of Blood Bowl inspired game. That'd be fair to say. Absolutely. It's so. What what's interesting is uh, so Blacklist Games uh, came to us. So I'd been chatting with. Uh, Adam Sadler, who's one of the uh, lead game designers over at uh, Blacklist, I think he's actually he's I've undersold him. His title is much more impressive than lead game designer. But he, um, me, me and him have been talking for a while because um, we'd kind of we I think we'd met on Twitter or something or Facebook or somewhere, and we were both fans of each other's work. I quite like the stuff he'd done at, at uh, Fantasy Flight when he was there. He was quite a fan of Silver Tower. We bonded over uh, shared experiences of trying to adapt Warhammer Quest for a new audience. And so about, well, just over a year ago, I, I was working at home. So it was probably into lockdown, but I think I hadn't been home for long. And uh, he said they were looking to develop a range of third party Blood Bowl miniatures, which, um, yeah, that's a, a popular market. They wanted to get into that and they wanted to have a game to go alongside it. Uh, and I said, OK, but I don't want to just make Blood Bowl again because I've seen too many kind of games that try to sure, you know, justify yeah. a miniatures range and they don't feel like they're a good game in their own right um and he said well no we've got no interest in doing that either um and so we've kind of developed this uh it, it's an interesting one because it has to use teams that are compatible with blood bowl so they're kind of the the sets and the you know layout of the teams is kind of set mm. uh, we've done some some clever little things to make it its own game and it's it's a game that focuses much more on the management of your team so it's more about the strategy than the um, the turn by turn, blow by blow tactics. I suppose it's more about um, managing your team's fatigue and how many uh, infractions your players have scored and all that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, it's a whole, it's a diff- very very different gameplay experience. I think. Cool. So you, you've anyway. also, it sounds like you've had quite a nice time sort of transitioning to to needy cat games. You've had you've had quite a lot of success with needy cat games as consultancy and you've sort of gotten some time to work on your own projects as well have you have you found that transition from like being basically part of the corporate entity to being sole like a sole trader effectively is that has that been a smooth transition or has it been fraught with difficulty especially over the last year with the pandemic and everything yeah i mean there's definitely been some some bumpy patches along the way we um Sophie and I have uh, we, we've worked sort of in parallel for a long time. We both used to run uh, games workshop stores. We both ended up working for Nottingham City Council in, in an exciting brief period of our lives. We both worked in the games workshop studio at the same time. Um, but I think the main thing that's kind of uh, you know been a big part of our our time together has been repeated leaps of faith. And um, like you know we we moved from London to Nottingham because. We wanted to get up here and get our feet into the industry up here. And um, also, we couldn't afford London anymore. So we just kind of just took out a map and went, right, where do we want to go? And Nottingham was the, the big winner. 
but um we've had several of these sort of leap leaps of faith and it feels like every good thing we've had happen has been as a result of one of those and, and this this was one of them i mean um needy cat came about not to give you the the whole long life story but needy cat came about because i was working at games workshop i was increasingly conscious of as i said earlier the fact that i was very much a cog in a, in a machine and i wanted to do more things i've always been someone who I like to be involved in every part of the process, you know, and it felt strange to be kind of designing the games and then handing them on and they would get laid out and edited and marketed and all that. And I had nothing to do with any of that. And it felt like sort of being in a vacuum. It wasn't until I, you know, we'd have like a, a Warhammer fest or a show or something. That I'd get to meet the people face to face who were, you know, buying the models and playing the games um but i kind of got that feedback you know we were discouraged from using social media um and things at the time you know we weren't allowed to own up to which games we designed and i i just felt very um you know cut off from public and i mean prior to working at games workshop i'd been uh at mantic games as a community manager so i, I was very much used to just dealing with people you know speaking to people and all that kind of thing and um so i was kind of increasingly dissatisfied and then um we uh well one of the guys in the office a chap called alan Bly, who was the one of the lead writers at uh forge world at the time uh passed away quite suddenly and he was like 43 and i just had a sudden short sharp shock of like oh life can be very short actually if you don't <laughs> you know take yeah. the occasional leap and um so yeah so i was kind of spurred on to to do something i'd been wanting to set up a games company forever um I'd always had, you know, visions of making my own games. I've been making games for as long as I could I could remember anyway. And um it just felt like, well, there's never gonna be a perfect time to do it, so just just do it. And I mean what's nice is we've never been without work. We've always had work come to us and I think we um we we've now got to the point where we're charging a sensible amount for a, the first couple of years we were definitely undercharging for what we were doing. But I think that's true of any you know, small business. I think it takes you a while to get your prices right. Um, but yeah, it, and it, it's it's been a, a fascinating process, especially as you say. Over the past year, um, we were having to do homeschooling, so our capacity half. Normally, Sophie and I we share projects, we work on things, we work really well together. I tend to get really zoomed in on all the details, and occasionally Sophie throws things at me and tells me to step back and look at the, the bigger picture and um suddenly we were unable to work together as much as, as we had and so yeah last year took a lot of um adaptation to the way we normally do things but we're catching up now which is nice um and it actually it feels like a lifetime since i was at games workshop it feels like um everything has changed and i don't think i could ever go back to working you know in an office for people <laughs> that that sounds like hubris i'm gonna you know in a year's time you'll find me working at, I don't know, a factory selling screws or something, uh, and that'll be my, <laughs> my my life from now on. Um, and I'll regret having said that. But certainly, I I don't feel like I want to go back to working for anyone else. I, I quite enjoy having the freedom to pursue things that we want to do. Yeah. Um, so you've also you've obviously you're driven to give people a leg up in the industry as well. You've run numerous courses. And your own Discord is focused on bringing industry folk together, especially in the UK. Uh, I recently took part in the Tabletop Mentorship Program, which has a similar aim. And I believe you've been part of that program yourself. How did you find the experience of being a part of the Tabletop Mentorship Program? 
I, I really like it. I've done it three times now. Um, I The first time I did it, I think it was, it was the first one they launched, and I took on two mentees that time. Um, and I've, I'm, so I'm now on my fourth mentee. I've only done one at a time since then because it was a little bit too much. Um, sure. Especially if we've been busier. But I, I love it. I, I What I find most um, fulfilling about it is the fact that I'm I'm very very painfully aware of the fact that I am in um, shall we say an overserved demographic in tabletop gaming. You know, uh, I, I I've sat on several panels where I've looked to my left and right and realised that everyone looks like me, and most of us have very similar paths that we've got into this through. You know, it's like well we worked yeah. at a big company and then started doing things ourselves and whatever else. And what's been really interesting is working with uh, mentees who have had very different experiences from me um so for example uh, the first time around had a mentee called uh, danielle who was making games for the sheer love of making games she was a graphic designer by trade and in her spare time she was making board games and was uh looking around frantically for a publisher and i mean she was using i think that year she used every day of her annual leave to go to various conventions in the US to pitch her games at publishers. And um, that was a thing that I'd never really had any experience of. You know, I've, as I say, we've been lucky. We've only ever had, you know, we've worked directly with, with clients who have come to us most of the time. Um, and so it was a chance to see how people that haven't had the same privileges that I've had um, get a foot in the door and get into the industry. And I think I've learned as much from my mentees as they've hopefully learned from from me it's definitely it's not a one-way process i don't know if you, if you found that yeah ab- absolutely um I, I was mentoring adam from punchboard reviews uh, to, yeah. uh about sort of writing side the sort of criticism side and yeah i i helped him out a lot with sort of bits and pieces of his writing and like some some direction there but he also like helped me out with some of the website and stuff which he's basically his, his day job is sort of like yeah. websites and and metrics and that kind of thing so yeah it's it's absolutely a two-way street uh yeah thoroughly recommend it to anyone yeah. it, was, it was a really good experience and i think I've, I've seen some people who who have said like oh i, I don't think i could be a a, a mentor I'm, I'm i'm not experienced enough or something or you know I, I i'm interested in being a mentee but i feel like i'm too experienced and it's like actually i think the whole point is it's it's a way of matching up people with a skill set with people who don't have that skill set but want it yeah um, and i think it's it, it's it's wonderful it's brilliantly run they do a load of activities around it which you're free to participate in as much or as little as you'd like to um i've currently uh, jack my current mentee he's he's very on the ball he's got he's got very specific things he'd like to like to do and we're just kind of having regular meet meetups chatting you know for an hour at a time and he goes away does a load of work and comes back a, you know a, a week or two weeks later and We'll work on that but like for some i know some people are getting really involved in all the community things and weekly hangouts there's just so much stuff going for it I, I would recommend that anyone who has any interest in getting into the industry at all um check it out and it's not just game design i mean as, as you said you know there the, the, there are mentorships in all sorts of things you know whether it's uh, reviews or graphic design or publishing marketing there, there's all sorts that they do yeah we, we talked to the the folks behind that recently about yeah. special cast uh, about that and uh, yeah they had they had one that was i think a distribution me- mentorship basically oh wow they're saying up a distributor and 
managed to, yeah. managed to give up. But yeah, they, they do have a Discord that's easily accessible. We'll put links to that in the show notes for the cast. Mm. Uh, yeah, and it's yeah, it's definitely definitely worth it. You, you sort of touched on there that um, yeah, I mean, we're two white guys talking about the industry. Uh, let's fix it. Uh, yeah, let's fix it. But there has been a lot. I mean, there's been a lot of talk, especially over the last year. There's been a lot of introspection in the tabletop industry, and in in, bo- in board games in particular, and that has also touched the world of miniatures gaming as well. Uh, there's been a, a lot of talk about, especially the representation of women in uh, the miniature gaming side of things. How do you think the sort of Games Workshop, Mantic, other sort of big miniatures companies can encourage women into the hobby? I mean, you've, you've been a community manager yourself. How how would you go about that? Yeah, I mean, I've I, I've been there. Also, we share an office with uh, Annie from Bad Squidio Games. Oh, who, right, yeah, sure. So she's she's two doors down from us uh, in, in our little office block, and um, so yeah, we we talk a lot about this kind of thing. I think. What's interesting is I, whenever you see a pushback on this from people, it feels like it's um, it comes from a place of, you know, people feel like they're being told, oh, you can't do this thing or you can't do that. When the thing that Annie's often said um, is, you know, not, not, not to take her words out of context, I'll paraphrase as much as I can, but she said it's not about saying you can't have a chainmail bikini. It's, it's saying, but what about the people that, dress sensibly you know what What about the characters that um that look like they're actually kitted out for a fight and i think that's like a microcosm of the, of the bigger issue is that you know miniatures gaming especially but also board games in a big way have mm. very much been created with a very specific gaze for a long time and i mean there have been controversies in recent years i say controversies um you know people realizing that um you know board game art should should be more inclusive um yeah and you always get the people who push back and say well, why are you saying i can't enjoy the thing that i want why are you bringing politics into this and <laughs> you know the, the thing that I, I i've said a few times is well people like us have the, the the privilege of not having politics brought into it anyway you know we have the privilege of just playing a game and not being reminded of issues that we have to face on a daily basis um and wouldn't it be lovely if everyone else could have that same privilege as well um and i think yeah whether it's talking about um gender or race or you know trans issues any kind of representation issue i think that the bigger companies do kind of have a duty to start pushing towards that i mean i think we're starting to see a little bit of uh stuff in you know the games workshop miniatures range there is certainly a bit more um you know diverse representation happening certainly when i was there um i believe there was a discussion had that they realized they didn't have uh many characters who were black and weren't baddies and it was right. like they and in fact in warhammer quest the uh, the war priest was sculpted um to to not be a white character and it shouldn't have been revolutionary in like 2014 or whatever it was. You know, that should not have been a massive thing. But there it was. And I think they're, they're, they're taking steps in that regard. Yeah. But I think that as far as I'm aware, there are still very few people working in a, uh, a creative role, like, a, like a, a creative direction role in that company. There are very few people doing that job who aren't white men. Yeah, and you know, I I think they would certainly benefit from getting more diverse voices involved. But it is it's a process, you know. And I think if if progress is being made, that's a good thing. Let's let's just, let's not 
become complacent and say that something's fixed because there are that there are now a few ladies uh, stormcast. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's a certain amount of like, don't rest on the laurels. That's great, but yeah, can yeah. can we do more? And the answer is nearly always yes. <laughs> yes, you can do more. I just wanted to clarify that I, you know I know a lot of people that work at Games Workshop still at, 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 like on on ground level. Uh, who are you know the writers, sculptors, and the fact that they are brilliant. It's just the people at the top who I think need to start moving things forward. More yeah, absolutely. That, that that sort of direction has got to come from company heads, really, doesn't it? Because otherwise, yeah, I mean, you can petition all you want from inside a company and ask for things, but if the head honchos aren't really pushing it, then you're not going to get exactly. terribly far. But on a more general level, what do you think that um, companies like Games Workshop, like Mantic, the big companies you've worked with, what can they do to help encourage people into the more professional side of the hobby? Because we all always need new blood, new ideas to, enc- to encourage people to come and work in the industry. Yeah, I think um, one of the big things that uh, I've seen companies fall down on, uh, and it, it's a tricky one, but it's very tempting i think when you have um a captive audience so to speak people who really want to come and work for you because you're you know a games company whatever else i think it's tempting to to not pay what would be considered a fair wage necessarily um and i think certainly you know in this country we we are terrible at talking about that sort of thing anyway and um that can be a a challenge in its own right but certainly I've, i've seen people who have applied for jobs um at Games Workshop, for example, uh, and have then, you know, pushed through the interview process, and have then finally got to the point where they're talking about salaries and said, "Oh, no, no, I can't afford, I can't afford to do that. That's that's way less than than I was I was expecting it would be." Um, and I think that is a thing which it, it limits the sort of people that can come and work um in the industry and and, and working in that way because as i said earlier it is you know places like games workshop mantic steamforge these are come these are in some ways a fantastic gateway into the industry because they're a place where you can go and get a job you can work as i said reliably with sick pay and holidays and all these sorts of things um but it's so important that the staff are, are, are given you know the right um compensation for the work they're doing i think hopefully that, that that's not a controversial thing to say <laughs> but i know some people <laughs> you know the, the the problem is of course that a lot of these businesses so mantic for example mantic are a, a lovely company and they they run on very tight margins you know they're they're a small company they're still one of the bigger tabletop games companies out there but they they still have you know that they're, they're still a small company in terms of companies and um, I know that they work that they run on on very tight margins. And when I was working there, there was, um, you know, I, I don't know for certain, but I got the impression that maybe they expanded a little bit too quickly um, in the initial mm. Kickstarter rush, and then had to kind yeah. of scale back a bit to, to keep themselves uh, operating sensibly. So of course, you know, I'm not suggesting that companies need to bankrupt themselves, um, but I, I think one of the biggest things that a company can do encourage people in is to offer people a sensible wage yeah yeah and it, yeah I, I, we hear that quite a lot through the industry of like i think you were talking earlier about like basically designers doing the thing of like making games then going out and pitching it and the contracts yeah. and deals there aren't necessarily terribly good until you're until you're reiner Knizia or until you're like your eric lang till you're till yeah. your name the actual deal you're getting is not necessarily great yeah i heard of that a couple of years ago and i don't know how, how out of date it is 
but like there are more or there were at the time more astronauts like you know operating as astronauts in the in in the world and around the world um than there are full-time professional game designers and uh, i would believe it you know because yeah i can understand i can understand that even even some of the big names are people who um who are doing it as a, as a second job you know they're they're working full-time and designing games you know at, in the evenings at home because that's I, I think no no one gets into game design to to make mega bucks hopefully. <laughs> no. but even if they wanted to it's not exactly a big possibility yeah you have to be you have to like get a hit like a like a wingspan or or a scythe or something of that ilk. Like, I mean, I mean, and... even then, you hear stories of like some of the early Kickstarter successes. So, Kingdom Death Monster, which was, I mean, it, it was the first board game I believe to cross the one million dollar mark on Kickstarter. Yeah, and uh, my brain's gone. I forget the name of the guy behind it, but I, I remember reading an interview with him where he was saying that if he just stayed, um, you know, in his full time job, um, was still just sculpting miniatures and selling them on forums. Uh, he'd have been better off financially than the million odd dollar Kickstarter that that he did because, you know, ob- obviously everything scales up, your costs scale up as much as everything else. And um, yeah, I mean, we, we've seen people uh, who come into the industry, especially in the past sort of five years or so, where, where it's become a bit bit more well known in like financial circles, especially since Games Workshop's had its successes. Um, but you, we've started seeing people coming in who want to invest in the industry in order to make money. It's like, well. You probably can if you're very lucky, <laughs> you know, but it's not exactly yeah. a likely thing. Yeah, I mean, we're sort of seeing that level of investment at sort of the asthma day kind of level where they're basically yeah. asthma day are so big right now because of investment from a hedge fund, effectively, yeah, uh, from, from an investment company. And um, whether that will end in tears, who knows? I could speculate all day on, on sort of size yeah, of asthma day and how they're absolutely. acquiring things and how they're splitting things up. But yeah, we're yeah. definitely seeing that in board games where it's becoming enough of a thing where we're starting to see outside investment and people interested in it as a, an investment opportunity rather than yeah. getting into the, for the love of it, they're getting into it for, can this thing make me some money? So it'll be interesting to see I how think... that shakes out eventually. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting because, of course, it is an industry that's always been populated by people who are in it because of the love of it. You know, it's a cottage yeah, industry. Hmm. Um, and so it's interesting to see it kind of take on this new thing. Now it very much to me feels like where the uh, UK video game industry was in the eighties, you know, when you had all these yeah. loads of little you know, bedroom developers who were, you know, throwing out little cassette tapes of, of, of games they'd, they'd made. And then these three or four companies started coalescing and buying them all up and bring them in house. Um, and yeah, it just feels like board games were on the same sort of track. We're just 30, 30, 40, nearly years later. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'd agree with that entirely. God, cassette games, that takes me back. Oh, there you go. Oh, <laughs> terrible noises. Having that one friend cassette recorder who could copy games for you, my goodness, that was that was a winner. Oh, always amazing. Uh, so uh, we've talked a little bit about Kickstarter there and crowdfunding. Uh, so you've worked on projects that used crowdfunding to get made from big, big projects like Hellboy to your own games from NeedyCat. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion over the, of the use of crowdfunding by established companies like Mantic. What are your own thoughts on the use of sort of Kickstarter by bigger companies in the hobby? So I can kind of I can see it from both angles. So I mean, on the one hand, speaking as someone who has been involved in you know games like Hellboy, which which again did over over a million 
dollars, which was that, that was madness. Watching that was one of the first games that we agreed as needy cat, and then you know watching it do those sorts of numbers. I mean, from start we wish we wish wish we charged more, but <laughs> also, like it was amazing just watching like how popular it was. Um, and, and it's good. I've, I've actually played Hellboy. It's it's good. I, re- I really oh, like fantastic. it. Glad you like it. I mean, obviously, I've got like hindsight things that I've done differently, but I'm I, I'm still really fond of it as a game. Um, but what's um, what's really interesting is that Mantic wouldn't be in a position. I'm sorry. I've got, funnily enough, a needy cat in the room who is meowing. So I apologise if there's there's meowing. <laughs> um, she just wants to help me be on brand. Uh, yeah, Mantic wouldn't be able to take the risks on uh you know licensed games like that um without crowdfunding money i mean i I don't know how much people know about the way licensing generally tends to work but say there's a an ip holder um in this case dark horse comics i don't know the exact ins and outs of of how the deal works but the way it generally tends to work is that mantic will pay a fee up front to dark horse or whoever it might be in order to be given the license to use the the intellectual property, and then they'll pay a percentage to them. So, for a company to want to make a licensed game, they have to have uh, confidence that it's going to make money back. Now, when Mantic did Hellboy, they had no idea how it was going to go because the Hellboy movies are a, you know, they were a well known thing when it when it was first being planned. The Hellboy, the new Hellboy movie, wasn't even talked about. That wasn't a thing that, that Mantic knew was happening. Um, but you know what you had was an, a, a very popular but very underground comic, the sort of thing that it's not it's it's not a Marvel or a DC. You know, it, it, a lot of people know Hellboy, but it's it's long and complex and slow burn. And there were a couple of movies from you know a decade ago that were really well loved, but it wasn't like it was Star Wars. You know, and so there was clearly an inherent risk in making a tabletop game of that. The benefit of a crowdfunding platform is that you can gauge that interest before you put money into production, marketing, all that kind of thing. Uh, and you can get, you know, get the game to people who who want it. And so in that regard, I can I can see it being a good thing. On the other hand, we put a game on Kickstarter last year ourselves as a small company. And having spoken to other people that have, have done the same thing, it really sucks when a bigger company comes out with a game at the same time. And your little, you know, 12 grand Kickstarter to make the board game you've been working on for five, 10 years that you really care about just gets ignored because everyone's spending money on Zombicide or whatever it might be. And that can be really disheartening. And it sort of feels like almost there, there, there sort of needs to be almost two different things. You know, it's like you've got Kickstarter as a low risk, um, you know, investment platform for, for more established companies and Kickstarter as a gateway for indie publishers to get things out there. Because it really is, it's it's a thing that's being used in two different ways. And I think that the difficulty is that Kickstarter itself has no um, no incentive to improve because it's it's laughing all the way to the bank, right? I mean, Kickstarter are making money hand over fist. Yeah. And I've been speaking to people who have been saying for years that the Kickstarter backend is horrendous to use, which is why it's yeah. no surprise to see other alternatives starting to appear yeah because we've seen game found recently sort of pop yeah. up as a board game alternative and we're seeing some pretty big projects go to there yeah so game found were originally a pledge manager sort of back end to some of the kickstarter stuff and then over the last year or so they've gotten into actually crowdfunding by themselves and we've seen some fairly big projects like i think um the new robinson crusoe from portal games the, the edition of that that went to game found 
And I've seen a couple of other big projects I can't name off the top of my head basically say, yeah, we're going to GameFound soon or or what you'll have I, to I think find that us is, GameFound. That's what it takes. Is it takes two or three big, yeah. you know, um, I, I hesitate to use the word backers, people that people that support that platform. Yeah. You know, you need two or three of those to really get it going. And then I think you'll start seeing a trickle towards it, especially if they they put literally any effort at all into making the back end more usable because you know as you know kickstarter have, have recently made a few changes to how things work like they've, they've finally made it possible to uh you know make it easier to run add-ons to pledges for example which never i mean for years that was a thing people were crying out for um sure. the you know the inter- integrated pledge managers and things it, it doesn't take a lot to to do a better job than kickstarter so all it takes is them to get established and i think it could be a genuine uh you know exodus at some point yeah i mean we're seeing a lot of controversy on kickstarter right now there's been a few death threats over struggle yeah. games and uh the more recent terraforming mars kickstarter will be reporting on that on the next cast once i've yeah. established exactly what's going on there but yeah the the fact that there's no there's no moderation there's no way to manage that sort of social yeah. side of it is kind of telling from from Kickstarter's end, and it'd be not, if GameFound can make that happen, then I can see even more people sort of going to their platform if it's a bit easier to manage. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, uh, so uh, I've sort of run out of questions. So if anyone from the audience would like to come up on stage and ask a question, just to repeat for those who weren't here earlier, basically there's a bot in the audience that's recording our conversation. Uh, if you uh, put up your hand, which is the little hand symbol at the bottom of the Discord page, you can see uh, you'll have. I'll be able to see requests and invite you up on stage. Your question will be recorded, and obviously the answer will be recorded as well. If you prefer not to come up on stage and just want to ask a question in the lecture theater channel in our Discord, that is totally okay as well for those who are members of our Discord. So yeah, anybody got any questions for James? At least someone's typing in the uh, Lecture Theatre Discord channel. That's exciting. Uh, so is there a dream IP that you would like to work with, James? If you had, <laughs> uh, if you had the choice of any IP that you could work with, is there a, a dream one you would like to work with from our audience? So I have been saying for years that it is baffling to me that no one has made a game or a board game adaptation of the... Uh, Legacy of Kane video game, specifically Soul Reaver, which oh, is a PlayStation. Wow, that takes me back. <laughs> I know, right? Um, so, for those that aren't aware, it's a very elaborate um, storyline. But in Soul Reaver, you played uh, basically a cursed vampire. Uh, you know, one of many brothers. Uh, you'd been kind of cast out uh, because you had wings, and your your vampire dad didn't like that, and you basically got turned into this creature that could feed on the souls of vampires by some ancient force. And basically the game involved you going around killing vampires, lots of fighting and punching and stuff. Uh, but the really cool thing was you could shift into an alter, like a, like a ghost realm kind of thing. And you have yeah. puzzles, which would be possible in one, but not the other. And I think it's such a cracking license. I would love to get my teeth into it. I actually approached, um, I think it's square Enix who own it now. We approached them and they basically laughed me off the call it was uh, it wasn't i sent them a whole load of stuff like this is what we do this is what we've worked on here are the ips we've worked with here are some, some manufacturing partners we can work with um and they clearly hadn't read any any of it 
And uh, the woman I was speaking to, um, for the first half of the call, thought that when I said tabletop games, I meant like little tabletop arcade cabinets. And so she clearly hadn't bothered reading the stuff I sent over. Wow. Um, so I think that one's off the off off the table. But I would love to work on that. That or yeah. um, Jake and the Wheeled Warriors, because again, classic. oh, holy classic. hell. <laughs> And I keep that one. I haven't had. I haven't found out who it actually belongs to. And I'd love to have a chat with. If anyone knows who owns the IP, let me know. Not sure. Does anyone own that IP anymore? I guess they probably do. It's going to be brought back as like a Netflix live action young young adult series Absolutely. or something, right? Yeah. It's all grim dark. Yep, exactly. Sean Bean as Saw Boss. You know, it'll be great. I look forward <laughs> to it. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah, I would, I would love a live action Jason Warrior <laughs> series. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, we have a request. Uh, I will invite you up onto stage, Chris. Hello, both. Hi, James. It's Chris. Um, my my is a very generic question, but I think I always like to hear this from people who actually do this stuff well. Uh, what's your fondest game design memory? Whether it's from like when you first started out or recently, what's the thing that sticks in your head as being a whether it's a personal achievement or just something you absolutely loved? What kind of sticks out as your one of your fondest? Oh my memories? goodness! Thank you for that. Um, what what things? Okay, so actually, here's here's one for you. Um, probably my fondest game design memory is last year during lockdown. Um, I've been working from home for a while, and we've got um, a daughter, Lily. She was four at the time, and uh, she kept. She was really intrigued by what I was doing. You know, she'd see me coming down to the printer to get things, because like I'd scattered the contents of the Needicut office around the house. We had. I had my computer up in the spare room, printed downstairs, bits and pieces all over the place. And Lily was really interested in um, what we were doing. And she's she's been a board game fan, you know, since she was little, of course, because we're raising her right. And um, she she said, "Can I design a game?" And I was like, "Well, yeah, of course you can. What 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 would you do?" And she had an idea. And so we sat down and we took the day and we. Over the course of like two or three hours, we we made a board game that that she she wanted to do. It, it was called she named it herself. It's called the Mathematician's Rocket, which I thought was just an amazing name for a board game. That's and a good it's name. Like a, yeah, it was a kid's game. Yeah, you had to spin a spinner and land on planets and answer questions and win things. And I was like, this is this is really cool. And she she made all the pictures and things. I scanned them in and stuck them on and put them into Illustrator and made a board. And it was just. It was such a lovely experience because it was a chance to, you know, for a start, do something fun with my daughter. But also watching her, um, you know, we tested the game out and I said to her, well, you know, what what things worked, what things didn't, what can we change? And then we iterated it. And we've now got, you know, this ongoing project that we've been doing for ages. Um, and it was, I don't know, it was just, it was lovely kind of having that that connection through board game design. So I think that's probably my, my favourite memory of, of game design in recent years. That's great. Thank Excellent. you. That sounds like a very rewarding few hours and then ongoing stuff as well. So, yeah, that's great. Thanks. Absolutely. Coming to Kickstarter next year. Just you watch. I'm looking forward, I'm looking <laughs> forward to being either the mathematician or the rocket, whatever it ends up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Sure. I'm just going to put Thank it back you. in the audience, Chris. Thanks. Send him back. <laughs> Send him back. It's my power. As... Yeah. Incidentally, if you get a chance, do check out Chris's podcast as well because it's really good. I'm oh yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, if absolutely. we ask him nicely, he can link it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you're on the Discord, Chris, then please just put it in our message board as well to promote your own stuff by all means. Uh, so, from our audience, uh, what are the different challenges in working with original worlds like Robot Fight Club versus licensed products like Hellboy and Devil May Cry? 
uh it's a double-edged sword i would say um it's so the benefit of it is that you you have a lot of the hard work done for you already so with hellboy we already knew what sort of game it was going to be um because we you know we always design with the theme first we, we, we never i've got no interest in in like designing a generic game and slapping a theme on uh so we always kind of start off with you know what 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 emotion should this evoke what what are the players meant to be doing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so a lot of that work is done for us by using an IP. Um, the challenges, though, of an IP are um, that you have to get it right or the fans will kill you with sharp sticks. Um, <laughs> this is what I was really conscious mm, of. With, fandoms. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like Devil May Cry. I, I've, I've been aware of Devil May Cry since I was a teenager. I, 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 I went through a phase of playing it when i was about 14 and thinking it was the coolest thing ever i mean how many belts are they wearing you know it's just the coolest and most amazing looking piece of thing and then um i came to the video game and i was like well sorry the board game and i was like well i've not played the video games in many years and uh i need to get this right so i went on a massive deep dive um I mean, same thing with hellboy I, you know, i've read like 25 years worth of comics over the course of like about nine months and there is just this constant fear that you're going to get something wrong. You're going to fundamentally misunderstand something. So whatever you do, you're never going to be as big an expert as the, the, the fans, you know? Yeah. And so that is that can be scary. Um, also, I mean, when you're working with an original world, uh, like Robot Fight Club, for example, you don't have the recognition, you know, that people... Uh, want you know so people see a thing with hellboy on it if they're a hellboy fan they'll they'll, they'll click it they'll, they'll be interested um when so when we did robot fight club we had to generate those people from from scratch you know we had a few touchstones but there wasn't like a wholesale ip that people were aware of they could just kind of get into so you certainly have to do a lot more work in in, in that way cool uh so what, what's the bit of game design that you most admire or wish you'd heard You'd, you had thought of so what's like the bit of game design out there oh. in the world that you're like i wish i'd done that great question um i i love um game design ideas that make you go oh that's really clever you know um and i think probably the best example i can think of is i don't know if you've had much of a look at them but the exit games like the little escape room in a box 12 quid um, I've played some of the unlocks. I, think. I don't think I've played the exits, but I've played a so, couple of unlocks. Yeah. For me, um, the unlock games feel like Monkey Island. It's a dated reference, but they're like a point. They feel like a point and click. I will use the octopus on the steering wheel and see if it works. If not, I'll use the jam sandwich on the steering wheel. See if that works. That kind of feels sure. how um, the unlock games are, and I love those. I, I think they're really cool. I think the exit games, for contrast, are more like. Um, a mist or a zork nemesis or one of those you know, classic old um you know you're going through that there are puzzles but it's very obtuse and you don't necessarily know uh like it's not quite so laid out for you um what i like about them is is i've never seen a game series that uses so many innovative things generally in every single one of them there is something which makes me sit up and go that is incredibly clever how do they think of that it's hard to talk about it without spoiling them because yeah. they are full of surprises and they are you know, they're disposable you you tear them apart but there are there have been moments when uh so myself and sophie have played through i think pretty much the whole series we've got two or three left but um there have been moments in almost every one where we've been utterly stumped and then one of us has thought 
but hang on what if you and i mean you know there are things where there are clues in places you wouldn't normally see and things you things you would cast aside when you first open a board game that you think oh that's just advertising gum for whatever else and there's been information in there and it's oh it's so well done um so yeah i think that's that's the sort of thing when you get games that go beyond clever mechanics and going to just cleverly interacting with the game components i think that's great cool now i don't know what this is referring to but how did you find the game jam and would you do another yeah, so about uh, eight, eight or nine months ago, I think it was, uh, we ran a, it might have been long, I mean, you know, time has lost all meaning in the past year, so forgive me if sure. I've done that, but uh, we ran a game jam at Needy Cat Games to support a local uh, feline and wildlife rescue, so uh, we had taken several stray cats there over the years, and they needed to raise some money, so we, we did a little, a little game jam, and uh, it was... It was the first time we'd run something like that, and it was it was really quite um, it was quite in- inspirational. Like the, the, the number of people who took part and the just the level of ingenuity and you know design chops on on display it was incredible. I mean, we did it. It was a forty eight hour game jam, so I think we we sent out the email with the brief on the Friday, and we closed the the doors on the Sunday, and then we spent uh, a significant quantity of time going through the entries and playing them and uh ian who asked the question did a fantastic little game with uh cats and houseplants and i think he was ian correct me if i'm wrong here in the chat but i think you were leading up to your final exam or something so i think you had the exam was on the set friday so you you missed the first day or something but it was just one of many entries that had innovative ideas they really used the constraints of the exercise really well um and yeah i just loved it I, I we would love to do another one at some point it was just it was quite a task to organize it and so we have to we'll have to have a good reason to do it again anytime soon because we're so busy but i i, I loved it i love game jams anyway you know getting people to design stuff in a short space of time is it's just it's fun right it, it means you you cut through the nonsense and start coming up with with ideas that maybe you wouldn't always do if you were comfortable so yeah. that's great right, so do you do you constantly have ideas for your games mechanics yourself, or do you need uh do you need a focus of a specific project to inspire you? Are you always sort of making things? I I when I was doing games by myself, I was always fiddling around with notes and notebooks. Oh, and that yeah, kind of absolutely. I um I have so- Sophie is has long joked that I have like game design vision. She she thinks I see the world in like a series of of modifiers and dice rolls, and it's not quite. <laughs> true, but I definitely like if we're out and about. Uh, I might go, oh, that could be a really good idea for a game mechanic. And it can be anything. It can be, um, you know, I've been inspired over the years by things like, um, uh, oh, driving on the motorway. Uh, there's, there's, there's an interesting puzzle in the way traffic changes lanes or, you know, um, having having a baby and it being like, well, actually, that there's there's almost like an asymmetrical thing there where one of you is trying to, one of you may be playing as the parents trying to, balance the baby's well-being and your and your own well-being uh whereas the baby is just trying to you know fulfill a very basic set of needs and i think when you've kind of got um a brain for any kind of creativity you will be bombarded by ideas at the most inconvenient times yeah um i i used to be in the days before smartphones um i would regularly if i was on, on a long drive i'd always get ideas on a long drive because um I would 
uh, you know, my brain would be distracted and so I'd, ideas would run in, run in my head and I'd regularly kind of stop, get my, my phone out and call a friend or Sophie or anyone and say, have you got a pen? Can you write this down, please? <laughs> I, I, I ended up like, keeping a pen and pad in the car just, just for that reason. But, um, but yeah, definitely it's the sort of thing where um, there are definitely days when inspiration doesn't strike and those can be frustrating when you're doing it like, you know, full time. Um, but yeah, I've, I've got notepads galore. Usually, though, I can never find the thing that I've written down because it will be in a notepad somewhere. And there are like three dozen of those around the office in various places. Uh, I'm trying to get better at it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you, you, you tweeted out the other day, uh, we're going on fossil hunting today. I'm in full dad mode. I've suggested that we need to dress up like rocks and mask our scent so we don't spook the fossils. Lily is unimpressed, especially with my rock call. Jamie would yep. like uh, to know what your rock call sounds like. Um. <laughs> okay, so important question, Jamie. Do you want uh, sedimentary, igneous, or metamorphic? Because they are <laughs> subtly different. Hold on, um, hold on. I'm going to get Jamie up on the stage to ask this. Good, good. Yep. Hello. <laughs> right. Hello. Hello. Uh, that, that's a heck of a question. Um, I'm, I'm going to say it my favourite, which is igneous, please. It's a good choice. I mean, I won't lie, my metamorphic is a little bit oh, rusty because, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's the dumbest one. But igneous, uh, ready? Here it comes. So Ooh. that was igneous. Uh, that's Ooh, not no, that, igneous. No, that, that's incredibly um, igneous. I like that. But if you listen carefully, sedimentary is much more like. Well, that was a cat meowing. <laughs> Very well timed cat meowing. Um, but sedimentary is more like. There you go. So you can tell the difference. Amazing. There. Thank you very much. That was, that was wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the question. Well, uh, has anyone got any final questions for James before we wrap this up? Uh, oh, I can see that Ian has asked about whether I ever found the person who owns the Hoplite app. Hoplite oh, yeah, is a fantastic yeah. uh, Android app. It's a little um, tactical hex grid oh, fighting yeah, game Oh, yeah, I think we've thing. talked about this before, yeah. Oh, I love it. I, I've played that game more than anything. And it's and I've never tracked down the person who designed it because I, I really want to make a board game of it. And I've never never managed to find the person who owns it. So, again, if anyone knows who that is, let me know. Well, I don't think we've got any more requests for questions. So, yeah, I'd just like to thank James for coming along tonight and answering my questions and questions from the audience. I'd like to thank you all for coming along to this first test of this sort of interview format that we're hoping to do a bit more of this year. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed it. We'll put this out as a podcast as well, so you can listen to it again should you wish to or just advertise that around that we're doing that. Uh, Yeah, Uh, thank you all very much for coming along tonight. And yeah, James. So thank you so much for being our guinea pig for this uh, little bizarre little experiment. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the questions. I've really enjoyed this. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much, folks. Uh, we're going to. Oh, I've got something else in the light theater. Just let me check. Yes. No. This is people saying thank you very much. So uh, yeah, thanks very much, everyone. Uh, I'll be closing the stage channel now. So uh, yeah, ha- hope you all have a good night, and uh, we will be doing this again very soon. I hope with a new interviewee. Okay. All the best, folks. Thank you.